0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Dominic Riley has books in the British Library, in the Bodleian in Oxford, in the San Francisco Public Library and in many other esteemed institutions around the world. Dominic's books can also be found in the homes and yachts of wealthy individuals. But Dominic hasn't written the words in any of those books he's a bookbinder. That's a craft that goes way back to the banks of the Nile 2,000 years ago and perhaps reached its apotheosis in the gorgeous illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages. And appropriately enough, bookbinding is a skill that Dominic first learned as a teenager from Benedictine monks. Hi, Dominic.
1: Hi, that was lovely.
0: (laughs) As a child, you grew up in the countryside in Cheshire but you were sent away from home for, for boarding school. Yeah, to, where, where was I that? I went to
1: boarding school just outside London, and another Catholic school. Benedictine monks uh, were in the abbey, you know, in the monastery. The school was attached. Some of the monks were teachers in the schools, not all of them. I was very miserable there.
0: Um, About what, most of all?
1: Well, i come from the north of England, so they criticised the way I spoke. They'd all been there for five years, so I was an outsider. I was neither sporty nor clever nor pretty, and all of those count in a boys' school. Um, but I did get along with the monks.
0: How big a part did sport play in the culture? Oh, that's, of school? A, that's a great
1: question. It was a very, very sporty school. You know, so they'd play Eton one week and Harrow the next. You know, rugby, football, and uh, what's the other one that they do? Rowing? Did they? Did we row? I've got no idea. And you of didn't, course, clearly, no. So. <laughs> This is how I became a bookbind, actually. <laughs> so I get to this school, right? And all the boys have been there for five years, so they're complete robots. And I'd come from an ordinary school. And my housemaster, who was called Father Boniface, said, are you a rugger chap or a soccer chap? And I, I'd heard of soccer, but I'd never heard the word rugger, upper-class thing, rugger. I said, oh, is that rugby? Yeah. No, I don't do either of those. Now, apparently, in the long history of the school, no boy had ever refused to take part in sports, He said, are you asthmatic? No. Are you invalided at all? No. Well, you're going to have to speak to Father Wilfred. He's the headmaster. And I went to speak to him and he said, if you really won't do sports, we can't force you, because you're in the sixth form, you see, you're considered a man now. Um, You'll have to do something else on Wednesday afternoon, so go and look at the board.
0: And what was there? What was on offer?
1: What was on the board was two things. French cookery with Madame Maguire (laughs) and uh, bookbinding with Brother Bede. And you know what I liked? I liked the alliteration, (laughs) bookbinding Brother Bede. And it was also very nicely, you know, his calligraphy wasn't very nice. So I signed up with Brother Bede. I was the only student he had that year.
0: Where did it happen? Where did you meet with Brother Bede?
1: Well, there was a room at the far end of the Abbey grounds called the Trunk Room. So you can imagine, I mean, I don't know what they do now, but then you came to school with all your belongings in a trunk, Right. There wasn't anything on wheels, and when you when you've unpacked all the two hundred trunks, go in this outbuilding called the trunk room, and above the trunk room was a little room, where Brother Bede did his bookbinding, and Father Elias painted his little icons, his little Russian icons, and that was I'm where just the bookbinding was.
0: what century we're talking. Well, this here, is nineteen
1: 1982. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 1982. and so there we were, and. So Brother Bede gets out his little tools and said, we're going to be mostly uh, repairing hymn books. That's what I learned. So we introduced the the knives and the brushes and the glues and eventually gold leaf and stuff.
0: What was he like, this Benedictine who taught you?
1: affable, funny, a a sweet, lovable guy who was full of enthusiasm for what he did. But, of course, what I realise now and didn't know then is that Brother Bede was... Pretty useless. Oh no. Because he'd been shown a little bit by some other monk. So he was passing it on, (laughs) but not particularly expert himself, but nevertheless. I did all this and I was very proud of what I made, of course.
0: So bookbinding, the term, Dominic, it includes what both the, the making of the cover of the book and the actual inserting of the pages. What's what's <coughs> in, involved?
1: Yeah. Well, we know that bookbinding was invented at the same time in North Africa, the banks of the Nile, and in China. And in, in Western bookbinding sort of came out from North Africa. Paper comes down the Silk Road and ar- arrives in the Islamic world in about the 8th century. So in the Islamic world, they had paper. Five centuries before we did, we were still writing on vellum, you know, which is an animal skin, right up until the middle of the Middle Ages, 1400, all our books are still written on animal skin, till we got paper in about 1400 in Italy. And in the early days, the bindings had wooden covers. All the medieval books had wooden covers and metal clasps, and they were covered in quite thick leather, and they might have some um, decoration made from, you know, metal brass tools in them. No gold yet. And around about 1500, everything changes in the age of print because suddenly a monastery might have scribes who might produce three books a year with beautiful illuminated decorations. Now a print shop can produce thousands of books a year. I mean, Caxton, our first printer in, in England, I think he printed 100 titles in his... In his time, probably 20, 30 times more than somebody in his, the previous generation could possibly have done doing it all by hand. And not only that, paper is cheap. In 1470, let's say, paper is now being made all over Europe and it's made from cotton and it's made from rags and you know recycled clothes. But if you think about an average-sized book from 100 years earlier, it might have taken 100 sheep to make that book. So you see they are things owned by royal people and monastic people where the monies of no object. Suddenly, hundreds hundred years later, it's commercial.
0: Well, let's unpick some of that, yeah. that history that you've just summarised so beautifully because it's an amazing thing to stop and think about the development of this object that we, mm. we take for granted mm. now, mm. the book. So right back before the monasteries, when did humans start making
1: books? Gosh, well... Is the Rosetta Stone a book? Well, it's something that contains language, writing, intelligence. So yeah, some people would say a book is something that's portable. So no, I think a book can be anything that conveys information. In the tradition I come from, we would probably go back to the late Roman period where the poet Martial, for instance, mentioned in uh, CE 100 that he went out to the market and ordered some books. and they were, He mentions that they were made of folded pages of papyrus. So that aspect of the book structure that we're familiar with, we call it a codex. A codex is simply a book made of folded gatherings. So we know they were around in late Roman times.
0: And before that, scrolls were... Before that, the
1: scroll. The codex replaced the scroll. And before that, Romans had wax tablets. And they're great because a wax tablet is a hollowed out piece of wood and sometimes three or four or five panels and filled with blackened beeswax. Beeswax blackened with soot. And then you have a little stylus and you write on it and it reveals the blonde wood underneath. And it's for taking notes. And when you're done, you heat up the stylus and you smooth the wax out. You remember the etch? I was yeah. just going to
0: say. It's, it's exactly like a Roman a sketch, like.
1: and they found thousands of them at Hadrian's Wall near where we live in England. <laughs> and Michael, my partner, is um, he he specialises in ancient, early and medieval bookbinding structures, so he teaches the wax tablet quite a lot. And so that was a temporary thing, right? That they had folded books, but really, this is the most interesting thing: the earliest extant codex books that we know of. Uh, are called the Nag Hammadi Codices. And anybody who's written one of those excellent books by Dan Brown will know what we're talking about.
0: (laughs) Are they historically accurate?
1: Well, uh, you get some of the main points. The Gnostic Gospels, that all people are interested in the occult, you know, the Gnostic Gospels, but this is what they actually are, are as physical objects. In 1945, in a little village on the banks of the Nile called Nag Hammadi, there were seven, I think, brothers who were like peasant farmers, and they were going over there to get some good soil, fertile soil. And they found a pot with the lid sealed with pitch. So they had a quick conversation about, shall we break into it? Will a gin come out? (laughs) So they broke into it, and a gin did come out, a twirl of dust. And in the pot was a uh, a number, we don't know how many, of books that dated from the late 3rd, early 4th century CE. And they contain the Gnostic Gospels, and they're made of papyrus covered in North African goatskin And they contain the Gospel of Timothy. I don't know much about the rest of the contents, but those disputed Gospels, there they are. And the amazing thing about them, because they were in a jar that once contained olives, they were in really good condition. Very, very good condition. I mean, it's just papyrus, ink, and leather. And from that, we are able to study the very earliest book structures. But they were all just one gathering of pages folded in half, a single section except one is of two sections. And so you see, even within the making of these very simple books, you see an innovation, you see a, a, a great leap forward. Somebody says, what if we sew two together? Because after that, you can sew ten. And then you have modern books.
0: It's such a brilliant idea, a technological innovation. The book, it's incredible. It? Go, and also, going from something like the Rosetta Stone, yeah, which you can't lug about, yeah. to this thing. That you can and also, carry. there's
1: this, it's also a Christian manoeuvre because the, early Christian church, the North African Christian church, the Copts, of course, they're a proselytizing uh, religion. And so suddenly, you know, the scroll is very cumbersome to make and to transport and to read. The codex is that reduced, compacted almost for travel and therefore for dissemination. So it's part of the story of the burgeoning spread of this new religion.
0: And then, of course, religion plays this crucial role in the fact that monks in monasteries are, are handwriting, transcribing religious texts into those books made of or vellum step, or, yes. or animal hide. Have mm. you visited, is it scriptoriums? Is that the room? Or What part of the monastery did this happen? What well, I visited like? a
1: lot of monasteries. So I've I've seen a lot of scriptura, scriptoria, whatever you call them. Um, typically, so you imagine you imagine an abbey church, and next to it you imagine all the buildings of the monastery, and then there'll be some kind of quad uh, for, you know, enjoying the sunshine. Perhaps there'll be a fish pond. And then, of course, there'll be the cloister, and the cloister will go all the way around the quad, and in the cloister there will be these little uh, cubicles, and that, w- that may be where the monks do their writing. Now, in the name of the rose the best film ever made about a scriptoria, (laughs) I think it's entirely wrong. Oh, really? I don't think those monks sat in a great loft uh, room all communicating. I think they mostly worked solo in their little cubicles because they needed the light. So they worked in the light. And we have a friend called Christopher de Hamel, who's from New Zealand. He's the world's greatest expert on illuminated manuscripts. He's at Cambridge. And I asked him once when he did a talk... Of all the books that existed in medieval times, particularly illuminated manuscripts, how many survive? And he said, I mean, he's a professor of the subject. He said, that is an almost impossible question to answer, about 9%. I <laughs> said, so, thanks for that. Uh, it's a guess. And,
0: we and don't what know. what happened to
1: the other 91? Um, w- yeah, they were lost, stolen, traded, bartered burnt through anger, buried through spite, and then most importantly, at least in England, two periods, uh, they couldn't burn them quick enough. And one was the 1540s with the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII, and then under Oliver Cromwell in the 1640s, uh, we go at it all over again. And it's, it's, it's the work of, well, I guess it's the work of, in a country where you've only got, you've only got one religion, but you've got two versions of it. One side is always illegal. So when power shifts, you've got to burn all the books of the others. I don't know how many books Cromwell and Thomas More burnt, but it's hundreds of thousands. You know, knock down the monasteries, the monks are sent off to France, and then you burn all the books.
0: So back to your own history with bookbinding, oh, yeah. Dominic. So on those Wednesday afternoons where instead of rugger or mm. soccer, you went up with with Brother Bede and, and learnt a yeah. version of bookbinding. What was the next step in becoming a proper bookbinder?
1: Then I went to university in Leeds to do English and history of art and I was talking to my professor, who I'm still in contact with. We have a, quite a fun friendship. And I said to him, oh, um, I'm a bookbinder and he said, well, we have a book bindery in the basement. What? Yeah, um, come and see me. So he gave me the keys. because He was unusual as a professor of literature because he taught his students how to print. In fact, not unusual, unique. So he taught his students how to print and he was looking for somebody to teach them how to make little binding. So I started teaching his students.
0: And so you got the key to this? I got the key. And what was it like?
1: It was a, it was a warren, because the, the English department was three large Victorian houses knocked into one. So that little key he gave me, I don't think he even knew this, that little key got me into the book bindery with all the tools that you could imagine, and I was off, you know. And it also let me into the wine store. Oh, perfect. You know, where they had the Friday night wine. <laughs> and it let me into the uh, theatre department's costume Rooms,
0: the trifecta.
1: Yeah, that's it. I knew there was a word for it, and that gave me my dressing up clothes. So I went out in frock coats, and, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, aside from that, I met him actually five years ago, and I was doing a thing at the Bodleian, right? And Barnard now lives in Oxford in his in his emeritus years, and he came, hmm. and I said, I want to thank you, Doctor Barnard, for giving me my start, and I confessed about the key and the wine. <laughs> And he actually stood up and he said, I forgive you for the wine, not because I approve of stealing, but because it doesn't really matter because uh, it was terrible wine and I know because I had to pay for it.
0: Who was your next teacher? So if you began with Brother Bede, who yeah, did you find to so teach you so a little
1: bit of r- ridiculous work at the university. And then I went home for the summer. This is the middle of Cheshire. Uh, and my mum had been to a nearby village to get some flowers or something. And she came back and she said, I was just in Davenham. And there's a little bookshop I'd never noticed. It's an antiquarian bookshop. You like old books. Go and have a look. So I went the next day and met the proprietor, Mrs. Mann. And then this is what happened. This is curious. And, and every person who who is a bookbinder, unless they were of the generation where you did your apprenticeship because your dad told you you were going to, right? Those of us who chose bookbinding, we've all got this moment, right? And this is my moment. In the shop, in Davenham, in Cheshire, and I saw these books on the shelves and I opened them up and they were old books, but the covers were new. But I knew that the covers were done in such a way as to make them look old. So I was very confused. I was looking at some kind of hybrid, you know. So I said to Mrs Mann, what's going on with these? And she said, I have a little man in Chester. <laughs> she actually used those Victorian words. And the little man was Paul Del Rue. <laughs> Chester's 10 miles away. It's where my dad works, at the bank. So I went to see Mr Del Rue.
0: The little man in Chester. Yeah.
1: And he—I didn't realize this—but he wasn't the local bookbinder. He was actually famous. He'd won big competitions. He taught many, many um, individuals uh, bookbinding over the last twenty years. He was in his late forties, I think, at the time, and was already very well established. So he interviewed me, and he took me on. It was very much like a sort of—not as an apprentice, but as like a summer thing. I think he just liked me. I think he liked interesting people. He himself is quirky and odd. You know, we're all a little, a little strange. And um, I was with him for one summer with two other boys. who is a similar age and we were all learning bookbinding. Um, uh, dealing, of course, with the public. Because, you know, Chester's a very touristy place. It's almost as bad as Stratford-on-Avon. And, and the tourists come in and they'll buy a little notebook as their souvenir. As Paul says, they won't buy anything else. They won't leave their book for restoration. They won't want to buy one of my artistic... They'll just buy a five-pound notebook. And he hated the public. He's a fabulous man. <laughs> he shouldn't have had a shop, actually.
0: I was going to say, I've met shopkeepers like that. Yeah. You want that, do you? You know Off Black Books?
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, well, he was like that. He was the bookbinding version of that.
0: <laughs> so where did he want you to go and teach? You started with him, with, mm. with Mr Del Rue, but where did he advise you well, to go Well, I next? did
1: two summers with him, and then I was coming to the end of university, and I thought... Because I think I wasn't very adventurous. Never occurred to me to move to London. I don't know why. Perhaps I was just a little bit young for my age. So I asked him to take me on. And I thought, I'll live at home with my mum and dad, go in every day with my dad and become the next boy. And he said, no, no, you've got to go to the London College of Printing.
0: And who did you work with there?
1: Well, I went there to study with Mr. Vivian, John Vivian. and, And there was a reason for that. When Paul was an apprentice himself in the 1960s. He studied with Mr. Vivian at the university college. Paul was raised in an orphanage. He had a really sad childhood. And I think Mr. Vivian just picked him up and taught him about bookbinding, taught him about politics and classical music. And so Paul had retained this great love for uh, Mr. Vivian, as he called him, and Mr. Vivian was coming to the end of his career as a teacher now at London College of Printing, and I just did what he told me to do. He said, you go to London, get into the course at LCP, and you'll be taught by Mr. Vivian, and I was.
0: And what was he like as a teacher?
1: He was, uh, um, well, all, I had eight teachers. They were all men. They were all formerly working-class boys who'd done the apprenticeship because that was what's available to them. No university for them, right? So they were highly skilled. All done seven years. He was a gold finisher. That was what he taught us. So, if you show promise during your apprenticeship, they take you out in year four and they put you into the gold room, and you do all the gold tooling. That's what Mister Vivian did. So he taught me gold tooling. He was quiet. He was communist.
0: He was a communist.
1: Yeah. Oh, he had been a communist. You know, it, back when it was something you did. You you worked for the party. Um. He was very sweet and gentle, r- really the sweetest, gentlest man. He was a bit teased by the other teachers who were a bit more, you know, a bit more macho. Anyway, one day he was just going round seeing how we were all doing, and he said, um, how, how are you getting on? About halfway through the first year. And I said, I'm really loving it. I'm really loving this, partly because... I suddenly found I could do practical things. You know, my brother was always the practical one. I was the one reading books. I found that I could actually do things with my hands and create something nice. So anyway, I said to him, I'm really enjoying this. I feel like book is in my blood. And he said, wait till it's in your heart. And I almost cried. I mean, I, like Stephen Sondheim, I cry very easily. And I probably cried then, but didn't want him to see it. <laughs> so he had that ability to just... Um, He made the experience of learning this craft more than just a practical experience. He's the one that taught us all the stories about the history of our craft, the social history, not only the labor history because bookbinders were the first people to go on strike. We went on strike in 1786 because we didn't like working a 90-hour week. We wanted to work an 82-hour week. It took a year, but we won it. And he taught us about the history of, you know, the trade union movement and the, the old traditions of master-to-student stuff. And, of course, all our teachers, every single one of them came from a world that was exclusively male, except for the women who, of course, were in their own room and they did the sewing.
0: You say that if you had a, a showed promise, you were taken into the gold room. Mm, what, mm. what was that and what happened in there? What were you Well, taught? the
1: gold room is its own room because gold leaf is so fragile, so thin, that if if we were sitting here now and I had some gold leaf and then somebody came in through that door, the gold leaf would blow away. So you have to be in, in an enclosed room and you can't have any windows open for the same reason. Plus you've got a gas fire going, you know, because the gold leaf is attached to the leather by putting the leather on and heating up a tool and pressing it into the leather. And of course... Even my teachers' day, they all wore formal clothes, right? They <laughs> really? all had, yeah, they all had to wear a, a jacket and a waistcoat and that thing. So it's hot. There's no ventilation. Um, but most importantly, the old apprenticeship started throughout history. They started at nine, then 11, then 13. It goes up every generation. So my teachers probably started at 14 or 15. So you were 17 when you were in the gold room. And you start probably by taking the sheets of gold leaf out of the little tissue book. That's hard enough to learn. You'd probably do that for three, four months. Just lay out the gold on the suede gold pad, ready for the finisher. And then maybe you'd lay on, which means the books come. You know, books are going to be, be very elaborately tooled. The egg white... Adhesive, will you might put that on. And
0: that's still used, egg white?
1: Yeah, we still use egg white. It's the best thing in the world. And then, and then the boy might then be entrusted to cut up the gold and lift it up with cotton wool and lay it on the gold. Th- that would be called laying on. Still nowhere near using the tools. Probably using the tools in the sixth or seventh year. And mostly that would be done on practice panels. You know, all, all those apprentices. Because leather's expensive and... Also, the book is completely done. All the work's been done. The sewing and the trimming and the rounding and the covers and the leather pairing and the leather attaching. So it's all done so you can't mess up the gold. You can't correct gold tooling very much. So those boys, by the time in year, end of year six, maybe year seven, by the time they're actually entrusted to to do the gold tooling on the book, they are so experienced. And the, the interesting thing about the beating of gold is... It's one of the very few things that can't be done by a machine.
0: Why is that?
1: Because it gets so thin that you can't handle it, though the machine will destroy it. So if you imagine you start with a piece of gold that's, I think the sheets of gold are all three and a half inches square, and it's about half a millimeter thick. So uh, the gold beaters, again, another seven-year apprenticeship. All of these things are seven-year apprenticeships. You beat the gold with a s- certain kind of hammer on a certain kind of pad that's used from a certain kind of skin from an animal. I think it's vellum from a calf skin, from a calf. And you beat it, you know, like rolling pastry, but a million times more difficult. So you beat it until it's four by four, so it's now 16. You cut it into 16 and you do it again, four by four, 16. You do that, I think, five or maybe six times. You've got enough gold to cover a football pitch, (laughs) rugger or soccer, not really sure, (laughs) And it's thin enough to be measured in atoms. So that's the most skilled job in the world. So there's a machine that will get it down to the what they call a ribbon, which is half a mil. Everything else must be done by hand.
0: And then how is it used in the books? What, what role does it have?
1: Well, first of all, you can't touch it. So you have to move it with a combination of a knife and your breath. Your breath? Yes. Your, so there's, um, so you, you open the tissue on the suede pad, and with the knife you tap and the gold sheet, the gold, piece of gold leaf falls back on itself. You put the knife there in the blank space, and then you go like this. And that per sound flips the gold onto the knife, and then you can drag it off and lay it in. So where is it used? used in two places? The beautiful decoration on the leather cover, whether it's the title on the spine or the floral stuff, uh, you know, on the, on the leather. In the old days, it's all floral. Now it's more linear. Um, and then also on the edges of the pages, A lot of leather bindings have um, gilded edges, as we call it. And that is also done in the gold room by the same skilled people, and that's the most difficult thing to do. It's so difficult that um, I do gold tooling because I do it enough, but I haven't gilded an edge for years. Mm. It's so difficult to do. You've got to do it every day.
0: Podcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So, Dominic, you've built this fabulous career But what were job prospects like for a newly minted bookbinder back when you finished your study in London?
1: I thought I would get a job at a college as a junior teacher and work my way up because I I knew that I probably had a calling to be a teacher. Um, But unfortunately, no sooner had I left this college that they all started shutting down. And, and that was sort of the short-sightedness, you know, this sort of rampant capitalism, Thatcherism, everything was being shut down. and There were four colleges that taught bookbinding in London, and the Department of Education sort of took one look at them and said, well, surely we only need one. But they all did slightly different things. One did paper conservation, one did book arts, one did calligraphy, we did traditional bookbinding. I mean, it took a few years for them all to go, but they did all go. So I couldn't do that Anyway. I went to see my friend Fred, who was head of conservation at the public records office, and he'd already been to New York, and he said, go to New York.
0: Go to New York? Yeah, why Why New York as a bookbinder? Uh,
1: because it's exciting, and you can live off the smell of an oil rag, that's what he said, and it's true, because you can, you can do all your eating at the art openings, <laughs> and, and, you're, and drinking, you're drinking. And too. you're drinking. <laughs> so I went to New York on a whim, that was 1990, and I got a one-way ticket. And... I thought, well, I'll look up some bookbinders while I'm here, and they're all in the book. So I looked up about five, I visited three, and they all offered me a job.
0: So where did you start working?
1: I worked for a very scary guy who I can't mention because he'll probably have me killed. Wait, uh,
0: wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think of bookbinding as attracting scary guys who get you killed.
1: Uh, he, was, he, was, he was the son of a seon, he was the seon of one of the greatest antiquarian booksellers in New York. And he, he just had a drug problem. And coming from little old England, just like lovely Australia, I didn't know about guns. And then one day, he pulled a gun on me. He put a gun to the side of my head, so I had to leave there.
0: It's not what you sign up for as a bookbinder. Where, where did you go next?
1: I went to this gorgeous man called Paul Vogel, who I still see, and he is congenial and lovely and a great craftsman. His work is very largely beautiful, Leather and gold, you know, all sparkly and new for all the great publishing houses of Manhattan. But there was one book we did together. Um, I mean, I might get choked off if I tell you about this because it was a book for Rudy Nuryev, who was dying. Yeah, he was dying of AIDS. And he, he was in New York uh, and he was to perform one last time. Anne Bass, who all New Yorkers know, she's the greatest philanthropist of all time. She was probably president of the Ballet. And so she had bought for him a book. It was the premiere of The Rite of Spring, 1913, with illustrations by Leger, Dorin, and Mangien, I think. Three of those characters, all their sketches. So this one-off um, sort of portfolio. And we were to bind it into a special copy.
0: How nervous are you, Dominic, when you're up close with something as... Precious, irreplaceable, priceless as, as a manuscript like The the Rite of Spring from 1913. Gosh, What's I going through your mind? I suppose, is a, you're holding? I suppose
1: what you... Is, I guess it must be like a kind of discipline, like walking the tightrope or something. You can't think about it, otherwise you'll fall off. So if you're doing a book like that, or another book I did once, the only time I've ever done something that's probably priceless was a tiny little book in private hands, otherwise I would never have worked on it, that was a, a, a math... Primer that George Washington once owned. No, I don't know what the value was. So I think what you have to do is you have to treat every book the same. Be careful. Test your media before you wash a page. Test it. But we've got to, you know, we're surgeons. We've got to take a knife and start cutting these valuable books apart to insert the new material.
0: and, and if you're dealing with something like George Washington's math primer yeah. or, or, or something else that's irreplaceable, where would you have a nightmare if you were if you woke up in the middle of the night screaming? Which part of that process feels the most risky?
1: Well, okay, there could be many things. Uh, you, you sew one of the sections upside down. You have to undo it. Um, when you were taking off the leather, the, 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 the very fragile leather from the spine, uh, you know, it came off in bits and you and the next day you've got to piece them all back together, and that's tedious. And sometimes those spines just want to crumble under your fingers.
0: I guess the other thing that must be the case when you're working on an old book or an old manuscript is is that that book itself holds a history, doesn't it? Those mm. those marks, those tears, are part of the story of that object. Do you sometimes want to preserve those those very well? Things.
1: A good example would be. Um, this looks like pancake mix on your great-grandmother's cookbook. Should we flick it off? Because we can. There's a lovely word for that in Czech, skravinkels. It's the it's the longest word in Czech with no vowels. I, we get to use it all the time. <laughs> um, or shall we leave the pancake mix? And normally they say, oh, leave it. It's interesting. Okay, there's the public, there's the booksellers, and there's the institutions. The institutions say, save everything, unless it needs to be repaired for the functioning of the book. The booksellers say, take out that stain. Make it look good. Make it look new. And the public are somewhere in between. But there's, there's, there's a moment, there's a light bulb moment for me as an independent book restorer that illustrates this better than anything. I've been working for myself for about a year so at home and in comes this um, customer that's been referred. And funnily enough, I still see her. Her name is Ruth. She's a cl- uh, classical dancer. And this is her, bi- her Bible. It's broken. Covers come off. It's going to need re-sewing, Quite a lot of repair. So I go through, do the normal thing that I'd learned how to do. Talk about where it's broken. We can. It's got tears in the pages, which we can repair invisibly with Japanese paper. Resew the book, and I said, and when we get to the cover, I can, um, you know, remove all these stains. And she slammed her hand down like that. She was so angry with me, and I didn't know why. And she said, I don't want you to touch those stains. This is my grandmother's book. She died in the camps. My mother survived. And those are my grandmother's tears. So that was the day that I learned, before you offer to do anything, you say, do these stains mean something to you?
0: How did bookbinding lead you to meet a man named Julius?
1: Oh, my God. Well, it happened here. (laughs) This this story terminates here, but um, in Geelong... Well, so I left New York and I got a job in Berkeley at a, at a very small bookbindery called Taurus Bookbinders, just about four of us. Now, the boss, Tim, who subsequently went on to found the, the world's only bookbinders museum, which if you're in San Francisco, you should go and visit it. It's a fabulous place, it's got all the tools and social history. Anyway, he had bought the business this is 1991. He'd bought the business maybe four years earlier from the guy who founded it in the 50s. His name was Julius Penzes. And um, I met him once. He came in. He was not that old, probably in his 60s, but he'd retired, sold the business to Tim. And I got chatting to him. He showed an interest in what I was doing. And I heard his Eastern European accent. and I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from, I am from Hungary. I said, how did we end up in um, in America? He said... I was an athlete in the 1956 Melbourne Olympic Games. And I said, oh, tell me more. And all he told me was he ran the 10,000 meters. I I know enough history to know that that's the the year the Russians invaded. And essentially, at the end of the Olympics, he defected. Um, You know, sensible man, and he ended up in California. Now, I thought nothing else off that. It's an interesting story. In 2017, I was doing a lecture tour of Australia for this wonderful group the australian decorative and fine arts society so one of the talks took me to geelong and that that evening there was a party in this beautiful bungalow kind of house in the bush there were kangaroos all around new experience for me having dinner being watched by kangaroos (laughs) and they sat me next to this chap who was probably in his mid-80s and he was called Geza. And I heard his Eastern European accent, and I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Hungary. I said, how did he, I knew exactly where this was going. <laughs> how did he end up here? I was an athlete in the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. I saw. I said, so you must know Julius Penzes. Oh and he said, it's Penzic. And then he put his hand on his heart, and he said, he is my brother. And I knew he didn't mean brother. So I said, well, I worked with him. You work at Taurus? I said, yes, I worked at Taurus, And then I said to him, so what I don't understand is he claimed asylum here. How did he end up in America? He said, I tell you a reason. I'm not going to carry on doing the accent. <laughs> I'm
0: enjoying it, Dominic, but Even no, no I go, can do go, it. go, go, be, be who you are.
1: <laughs> yeah, he said, um, so they do the training, then they get out and they come here and they get acclimatized and get match fit. And while they're doing that, the Russians invade. So they correspond, I presume, through telegram the kids, you know, the athletes and their trainers and managers. And everybody back home says, you have to stay, live your lives. And none of them went back. They never saw their parents again. So I said, well, what about Julius? And he said, well, it's true. He ran the 10,000 meters, but he was to, we were all to do this on the last day. And they were all going to the Department of Immigration. But Julius had to run his race, which means four times around the track, out into the city and then back round the track for the final lap. And, of course, he just kept running. So somebody drew him a little map of how to get to the immigration department. And while he was running round the city, the little map fell out of his pocket. And he couldn't find the immigration department. All he could see was an American flag, so he ran there. And as you know, you have to claim asylum at the first country you enter. And that is the simple reason why Julius ended up in America. And I said to Geza... Did you ever see him again? He said, yes. Five X years ago, it was the 50th anniversary of the game. So, those of, the, of us that were still alive um, had a whip round, and we got him and his wife to come here to, to meet one last time. He died last year. And um, at this point, the woman who was the host saw us and she said, What are you chaps blubbing about? We were in tears. We were both in floods of tears. These things things like this happen to me all the time. I don't know. I must be cursed.
0: (laughs) Blessed, I'd say. Yeah. And I I guess you're a part of this world that on one hand is very small and contained but has tentacles all around the place to all kinds of stories, the world of bookbinding It takes
1: us all over. I don't know how many there are of us, but and we're all great friends and we're doing what we can to keep find bookbinding and conservation work alive. But it does mean that you have to travel both to teach and to study.
0: The Booker Prize is the UK's most prestigious literary award. What mm. role do bookbinders play in the Well, I think Booker. the Booker Prize,
1: whatever year it was founded, 68 maybe, from about 1990, the elected fellows of Design and Bookbinders, there's about 30-something of us. The shortlist is six. So six of us fellows are matched up with one of the authors and we're given a few weeks, five, maybe six weeks, to produce a unique binding that will be presented to, to the author. So, so do
0: you work in, in collaboration with them or is it no. a total surprise what, it's a, what it, you create? It,
1: funnily enough, with the exception of this year, it's a complete surprise. So I've done it six times, won it once, First time I did it, I won.
0: Which At one was that?
1: Howard Jacobs and The Finkler Question. Oh,
0: really? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm I'm quite childish, so the other fellow fellows say, oh, Dominic, you shouldn't say you've won the booker. I said, well, why not? <laughs> we won it together.
0: And what uh, was it like the moment that you present this, this book, say in that case well, to Howard Jacobs? Okay,
1: Jackson. so you, you do get to go to the dinner. So you go, you, you know, you get your horrible polyester suit out of the cupboard and you go on the train, you see... I wouldn't call them celebrities, but people you admire. You see authors that you admire, and I tend to go and talk to them because I think that's important, to say thank you for your work. Um, and you often sit with your author, and sometimes they've got no idea because they haven't read all the bump, that they're getting a book. <laughs> so they get their check, and then there's a little film, and then they sit down, and then they realize they've been handed a package, and it's the book and your job is to explain the book sometimes they know but it's delightful because you're making a book for a specific person it's not a commission so they haven't paid you so they're not they're not they don't want to see designs <laughs> they have no expectations it's an added bonus and they're usually thrilled
0: and and what's your process like do you you read the book presumably, and start you from do. there. Or how, how do you approach the, because um, I guess with that kind of binding, it's not about preservation. It's about creating a new yeah. cover, a new, it a is, new sense of the book.
1: So if you get a commission, there's usually no time constraint. So it could take, you might have the book for a year and work on it in your idle moments, you know, out walking. I, I tend to get ideas when walking so i don't really do sketches but the book is different because you've got maybe five weeks so what you have to do i think is have an idea and run with it you know how you're doing anything else you might tear it all up halfway through can't do it you gotta have an idea and run with it so they tend to be a little simplified but still they should look visually interesting yeah, you've just got to you've got to be confident of your repertoire of skills and the various techniques. Because there are there are hundreds of different techniques available to us. You know, do we do sculptural things? Do we do a lot of gold? Do we slice up leather in certain ways? So you've got to you've got to know what your toolkit is.
0: And what's your specialty?
1: Uh lots of gold tooling. Yeah. I love gold. My my mentor who just died at ninety four was a remarkable man called Bernard Middleton. And he said, No, I'm not really an artist. Um but I do enjoy the play of light on leather and gold. And I couldn't have put it better myself <laughs> because it twinkles.
0: So you first won the Booker with Howard Jacobson with, I did. This, with this first creation, but you said something was different this year. What oh, happened? this
1: year, you know, I said to you that my life, I didn't use these words, but I hinted at it. My life seems to be governed by fate and chance and coincidence. Um, and heartbreakingly stirring things happen to me all the time. This year was no exception. So back in, back at last June... The long list was announced. And what you're encouraged to do is say, which of these books on the long list you'd like to do if they make it to the short list? So I chose two. The youngest author ever, Lila Motley, 19 years old. The oldest author ever, Alan Garner, 87 years old. I didn't know he was still alive. Um, Lives 10 miles away from where I live in England. So I thought, well, I'll have both of them. He made it through. I read the book. And it made me cry, because it's about a boy called Joe who's ten years old, and he lives on his own, no parents, in a medieval timbered house. And one day, there's a man out. This is how the book starts. There's an old man with a conical hat and a horse and cart sitting outside, and he's shouting, "Ragbone, Ragbone! Any rags? Pots for rags? Donkey stone?" And that's the beginning of the book. And then they have adventures. The, the, you know, his comic. book characters come to life and jump through a mirror and he follows a bug man leaps up and that's all the ancestors it's called treacle walker that's the name of the the rag and bone man the weird thing is the house the the actual house is an actual house right so alan and griselda garner who already live in a medieval house um 50 years ago found that this incredibly important house next to it the old medicine house.
0: Old medicine house? Yes, what it's does called, that mean?
1: Because it was where uh, potions, pills and potions were made before Big Pharma, right? So for something like three or four hundred years, it was a manufactory of medicines, one of the biggest in the country, and they were knocking it down to widen the road. Mm. So the Garners, being lovers of heritage, um, applied and were given nine days to move it. So they moved it, and this house is imbued with magic. You know, it's got those protective marks everywhere there's like a, a, a vvm like um virgin whatever it is virgin of virgins virgin mary at uh, doorways and corners because you know the age of superstition a magical magical place they they, they stored the, they, they've had any money school teacher and author occasional author of children's books so the beam sat there for a while before they could Raise the money to erect it, and in the meantime, all the old seeds fell out of the beams and a wild herb garden grew. Wow. So once I read all this, I realise I have got to go and see this house.
0: So this is the house, Alan Garner, who whose book had been shortlisted for yeah. the booker, and you're, you're to design and the cover. And he doesn't
1: cover. live in it. it's It lives literally next door to their house, and, and it is a trust.
0: And you went and visited as you were still designing the Yeah, before the I
1: even started. Now, there's no reason ever to go and meet your author, but on this occasion, I had to see the house. And then of course, I'd love to meet Alan. So it's Griselda I speak to first. And she said, yeah, you can come, but I have to warn you, he is almost at the end from all the interviews, from being on the shortlist. So on that first visit, we didn't see him. Uh, A lot of the action takes place in the stack, which is the chimney stack. It's not a chimney breast. It's a room, size of this studio we're in. And there's this massive chimney that goes right up. It must be 80 foot high. And we go in, and Griselda said, Are you getting something? I said, I am. I've got the design. Um I've got the design. I just don't know quite what it is yet, but I've got it. I've got a I've got a picture. And she said, she got very excited. She said, That's how Alan works. <laughs> he also builds the story, whole meal, and then he writes it down. And when I saw the manuscript for Treacle Walker, it's the only manuscript, and there's one crossing out. So when we came back, I had the design, which is basically... And people can look it up. It's on the Designer Book Miners website, and I think it's on the Booker Prize website. Um, so there it is, and it looks like the medicine house. It's the, it's the beams and the plaster. And I've written the word, treacle walker across the top with a little tiny dot, but I've done it in glow-in-the-dark because I knew... Oh, I guess that if, if glow-in-the-dark had been around when Alan was a kid, he would have loved it. <laughs> and then I've added other dots around it in just ordinary silver so that actually it just looks like the stars because treacle-walker comes from the place of summer stars. That's how he's described. And the words treacle-walker were written by my young cousin who like Joseph in the book, is a 10-year-old boy called Joe who lives in Cheshire. Oh, my goodness. And, and when I told Alan that, he absolutely did start. To, he said, stop it, stop it, it's too much.
0: And so tell me that, that Alan was very happy when you had that, that oh dinner God. and you presented the well, book.
1: Well, he couldn't go to London because he's COVID cautious, right? The ceremony was his 88th birthday, so we all sang happy birthday. Griselda had taken me to one side at some point and said, I really hope he doesn't win because this has been punishing and they're all asking stupid questions and he's an old man so he didn't win so the next day I come back and we just got on the phone and we said well it was last night it was great we all you know we watched the announcement Um, I said I'm really glad you didn't win I feel like I know him now well enough to say I'm so glad you didn't win Alan and he said well I did win because as far as I'm concerned your book is the real prize he said the right thing
0: (laughs) Just to finish with, mm. Dominic, from all of these glorious books you've worked on over your bookbinding career, which has the most special place in your heart?
1: Oh, there's no question about that. It's the Kilmscott Chaucer. So obviously most people have heard of William Morris, the man who saved saved craft from the encroachments of industry. And the social reformer, radical socialist, founder ultimately of the arts and crafts movement, right? So gathered around him people of in all fields of um, ceramics and silverware and tapestry and stained glass and latterly printing, last 10 years of his life, and they founded the Kelmscott Press. So the last book that the Kelmscott Press did was The was the Great Chaucer. Um, it's an enormous book, illustrations by Byrne-Jones, printed by Emery Walker, who was the greatest fine printer of the day, and bound by Cobden Sanderson, who was the man who taught the men who taught me. (laughs) So these are my ancestors, right? All of our ancestors, really, all of those that come from the, the English tradition. And they're all here in Australia too, you know. So they did 475 copies. The majority are in the original bindings. There are four different Binding styles, so they should be left as they are. Some are in really beautiful 20th century design bindings done by some of the best bookbinders around. They should be left as they are. So when this man contacted me in California and said, I just saw your lecture the other day at the book club in San Francisco, and I've decided I want you. You are the one. <laughs> you are the one to bind my to put a new cover on my Kelm Scott Chaucer. And my heart sank because of what I just told you because what are the chances it's going to be not one of those five things and he brought it and it was in the most dreadful binding in the world and my heart (laughs) lifted (laughs) because yes we can with all with a clear conscience remove this cover it needs to be removed so he gave me the book and um that was 2012 and he said I'm not in a hurry very bad idea to say that to anybody creative, right? <laughs> Including bookbinders. So anyway, it took me five years. Why yeah. did it
0: take you so long?
1: I had to ponder it. Okay, so it's the, most, it's the most, I hate the word iconic, I'm, I, everybody does, but it is the most iconic book of the 19th century. It is the apotheosis of the arts and crafts movement. It's made by, made by a group of people who collectively are my heroes. I mean, I would. William Morris is one of the very few people I would lay my life down for. And sometime, of course. <laughs> so it's that. It's also very, very valuable. And the chances of me ever, of any of us, getting a crack at it is vanishingly small. So anyway, um, I got the book. I don't do sketches. I mold on it. He said, the, the owner, I'd like it to be both traditional and Contemporary, well, that's a stumbling block. So that's partly why it took me so long. And then one day I was literally out walking and I thought, ah, what did Morris and Co. that's Morris and Bern Jones, what did they cut their teeth on? Stained glass. They did a church in Adelaide that I was in recently. So I thought, okay, let's think stained glass. So if people look up this book, it's easy to see. The Kelmscott Chaucer, done by me. Um, you'll see it's a giant W and a giant M on top of each other, and it looks like stained glass. And so part of it is the me tracing the orna- ornamental drawings of the marginalia, and then it's some straight lines. So that's the modern, that's the traditional, and it's got a thin red line round everything because, like a lot of medieval books, the book is rubricated throughout. You know what I mean? The highlighted in red. Made red is what rubrication means. So, in conception, it was very simple, but the execution was rather complicated because of the nature of the book, its shape, its size, the design. I, you know, sometimes there's a there's a lot of complexity to something very simple.
0: That book was then donated to the V&A Museum in London. Do you go and see it? I do.
1: I take I take friends. So, if I'm in London and I meet friends that are visiting from America, let's say, say. So, We'll have lunch in the Green Cafe, and then I have a treat for you. And I get my book out, (laughs) so I know where it is. (laughs) It's fantastic. And
0: it's as beautiful as ever when you look at it now. Oh,
1: well, it's only five years old. (laughs) Give it 500 years, and then we'll see.
0: Dominic, thank you for taking us into this completely fascinating world.
1: I've enjoyed every minute of it, and you ask great questions. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.